Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly. And I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know that. And now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts that we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. to do something a little different. You'll hear in the background that I added some relaxing ambiance. And it's because I wanted us to just take a moment to get into our bodies and try to get ourselves to a really regulated state because today I'm going to be going into some really heavy, heavy things. And I want to preface this episode that if you're not ready to really dive into some extreme emotions and anger and rage and touch into the most hurt aspects of your psyche, it's okay if you decide that you want to save this episode for another time. We're going to be talking about 
rage, anger, violence, rape, sexual assault, childhood neglect, all of it. And if you're anything like me, especially in the beginning phases of my journey in recovery, there were times when I just wasn't quite ready to go there yet. But there does come a time where when you're ready to get past a certain phase and move through the grieving process that we have to move through anger. If you haven't yet listened to my scapegoat series, you may want to go back and listen to those before listening to this episode. It's not necessary, but you will get a more full and broad experience of what we're going to be discussing today. But if you have listened, we're going to be taking those themes even deeper. As many of you know, I completed a while back my mother and father wound episodes. And if you haven't listened to those, you'll definitely want to do that. Then we moved into the toxic shame series, which then moved into the scapegoating series. Through the creation of these and all the research I've had to put into making these episodes and all of the pain within myself that I've had to face while recording them and researching them has been also pivotal in my own healing journey. I've realized that these are the core wounds, the mother and the father wound, this intergenerational toxic shame that's been handed down just like a toxic bag of sludge to each and every one of us to play out in our lives in similar and also somewhat different ways. And lastly, the core wound of being scapegoated. Many of us who were the highly sensitive child in our family, particularly sensitive to injustice and wanting to call out the dysfunction in our family systems, were beaten down, whether that's physically, emotionally, or psychologically, or all three, and shoved into the dysfunctional role of family scapegoat, which then leads to further victimization, development of extreme psychological distress, which then often gets diagnosed as some form of disorder or dysfunction, when in reality, we were the trash can for intergenerational family trauma, which inevitably leads to an incredible amount of repressed rage and anger. And how this plays out in our lives is different, but this anger can either manifest as being projected out onto others because we can't take it out on our abuser or the person who victimized us or scapegoated us, or we completely hold it inside where it boils and bubbles and manifests even into psychosomatic symptoms or disease later on in our lives. It is so incredibly important that we touch this anger, that we understand it, that we try to seek out the message that it has for us to metabolize and digest it. And I want you to know that I understand that it can be really, really scary to think about your anger. I know this firsthand experience. Becoming aware of the anger, the deep, deep, monstrous rage that lies within you when you are a victim of childhood abuse, neglect, sexual assault, grooming, 
any of these things that lead to the development of serious childhood trauma, especially when it is compounded over and over and over throughout our entire lives to where we stop having any kind of connection to our sense of boundaries or intuition or our gut feeling. We don't know what's right or wrong anymore. We don't know who we are anymore. We don't trust ourselves anymore. That is incredibly rage-provoking. But we can't allow ourselves to express that because when we have in the past, it has led to us being scapegoated and abused and being called the problem one, the dysfunctional one, too much. So it makes perfect sense why you would be terrified of your own anger or maybe even unaware that it's there until it gets provoked and it almost scares you. And maybe you react in ways where you think, where did that come from? I believe this repressed rage is why we experience such horrific acts of violence in our current generation when it comes to mass shootings or people just popping off and murdering someone. You know, this doesn't come from nowhere. And these are extreme cases, of course. The majority of us are not going to go out and commit a heinous act like this. But that potential, in my opinion, lies within each person. There is shadow and light. We all have an inner monster. We all have an inner angel. And we are all just varying levels of disassociated from those different parts, if that makes sense. I'm not saying that there is a monster inside of you capable of a school shooting, but I am saying that we all have an inner darkness. And if we don't become aware of it, and we don't touch into it and see the power within it, the gifts within it, the transformative qualities within it, if we shine a light on it, it can become something we can use for creativity, power, strength, and protection. But if we don't, it can fester in the shadows and manifest as violence, disease, depression, any number of things, depending on who you are and how you're wired and your specific circumstances. It destroys our lives and it destroys our ability to connect with others. That is what toxic, repressed anger and rage do. Now, I told you last episode that I was done with the scapegoat series, that we weren't going to be talking about that anymore. Well, I sort of lied because I found a little bit more research that I had to share with you, and it ties perfectly into this episode where we are going to be doing a deep dive on repressed rage and anger. And I'm going to be guiding you in a bit of a journey where I'm hoping that we can get you in touch with those feelings more. In the final episode of the Scapegoat series, we talked about the five stages of grief and how that is incredibly important. Understanding that framework and concept is very, very key when it comes to healing from family scapegoat abuse and toxic shame. You have to move through the grief of what you lost and what you should have gotten. One of those stages of grief is anger. And we touched on it briefly in the episode, but as I was recording it and as I've been sitting over the last week or so, I thought there's just so much more we need to do with anger. It's not as simple as saying you need to move through your anger. Some people need help in facilitating that. 
some people need a bit of inspiration because sometimes we're so out of touch with our anger or we're so afraid of it that we can't even go there. It's almost like someone trying to explain meditation to you or something like that, like or explaining the flavor orange to you. You can't really know unless you experience a meditative state. You can read about it all day long, but the experience is something that can't be described, similar to the color red or like I said, the flavor of orange. You have to experience or see these things. And I think with anger, sometimes you have to have a facilitation. And in this case, because I have a podcast, I'm going to try to use the beautiful gift of intimate audio with me being in your ear and me being able to curate some sounds to help you get in touch with this. And it's my hope that this can help you tap in to your anger and really begin the process and once you've tapped into it then the journey is yours then you have to work with these energies then you have to really understand what it's trying to tell you that's not something i can do for you but i've put so much heart and soul into what i'm about to share with you today and what i've curated for you that it's my hope that this episode if it can help just one person tap into that anger and transmute and transform it, all of this work will have been worth it. I've said these kind of things before, but this was such a paralyzing aspect of my recovery journey and I've been thinking for a very long time about how I can possibly help people with this. And so this is my, my very first attempt. I did another episode on the podcast and long-term listeners will remember this probably over a year ago now all about toxic anger and i still stand by all the research in that episode but it was very very mental right i was even in my head and my recovery journey in that process i hadn't even begun to tap into my own healthy anger i don't think now when i'm really being honest with myself looking back at it all the research is sound i worked very hard on that episode and i stand by every word but what you're going to be hearing today is different because it's coming from a person who has finally I believe, really tapped into it and understand it a lot more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Being scapegoated or being seen as the problem and constantly having your gut feelings denied, being labeled the dysfunctional one in your family system leads to so much anger justified righteous anger but it can become toxic in our adulthood and as i was researching this week 
I came across the origin story for the term of scapegoat, and I felt like I couldn't not share it with my listeners. The term scapegoat originated from a story in the Old Testament, particularly from Leviticus 16 verses 1 through 34. And in this ancient tale that's associated with the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, Aaron in the Bible had to choose a goat to take on the sins of the tribe or the collective, and this goat was then cast out into the desert. A weak, domesticated goat would have likely died in a short time after being left to fend for itself. Therefore, the goat that Aaron selected had to be a very strong and robust goat so that it could fulfill its purpose of relieving the tribe of its sins, which is why Aaron had likely chosen it most carefully, meaning it was imperative that this goat survived for a long period of time after being cast out by its herd. In another translation or version of an understanding of this story is that the Hebrew tribe would gather together two goats. One goat would have all the sins of the tribe somehow pinned upon it, metaphorically pinned upon it, of course, and another goat would be sacrificed. And the goat with the sins would be sent out into the wilderness to carry them away where it would die. And just as many of these stories, these allegorical fables that have been told in many of these different major religions, we don't know for sure what the meaning of the story was. We don't know why there were two goats. We don't know why one was sent away and one was sacrificed. In many of the Romance languages, if they were like French, Italian, Spanish, the term used for what we call scapegoat is something like the emissary goat, the messenger goat. And Tyndale, who is the person who translated a version of the Bible, there's a version of the Bible translation called William Tyndale's translation. For various reasons, Tyndale decided to create the term scapegoat. And so this term is now what we use to talk about anybody that becomes a vessel for someone or to somehow carry away blame or absorb blame from a society and remove it. One of the most important theorists on scapegoating in recent times is the late Rene Girard. He was a literary scholar and anthropologist, and he identified what he called stereotypes of persecution. But to understand these, you have to understand how he thought the scapegoat served a social function. The idea was that if you think about this story that we talked about in Leviticus, the Hebrew tribe goes through this ritual. Gerard thinks that these rituals are based on an event that really happened and happened spontaneously. Imagine a community where people are at each other's throats. There's been a crisis of some kind, and it doesn't matter what the crisis was, but everybody starts blaming everybody else. Aggression feeds on aggression, and the community is at risk of simply falling apart due to an internal conflict. Does this sound familiar? Because it certainly does to me. It sounds like what's going on right now in our culture today. But then something happens. Somehow everybody's blame, instead of being directed and diffused throughout the community on everyone's shoulders, it starts to concentrate on one particular target. 
And then the solution to the community's problem then isn't complicated and systemic. It becomes very simple. You locate the target, which has become the source of all of the society's problems, or in this case, the family's problems. (laughs) And this is similar to how the goat took on all of the sins of the community in the story. Then it's easy to expel, send away, or kill the problem. And for a time, it feels like the community or family has resolved its problems, right? You send your child off to a psychiatric facility, they come back with a BPD diagnosis, and ah, yes, see, that was the problem. We're validated. Our child has a disordered personality. It's not our dysfunctional family. This way, all the resentments can be a bit suspended. But the thing is, it's only temporary because the systemic rot lingers. You can paint over a moldy wall in a bathroom, but the mold is going to come back. Because people really do think that the cause of all their problems has been taken away in this situation. And what happens is that the problems turn out to come back and recur. And then it's necessary to repeat the scapegoating ritual again. And this is how Gerard believed scapegoating worked. The fundamental features of a scapegoat is that the scapegoat has to be someone who a community or in our instance, a dysfunctional family can unite against and can be expelled or destroyed without creating a new crisis, which means it needs to be someone who is very vulnerable and isolated. Someone who no one in the community or family will stand up to defend. Why? Because if someone is willing to stand up and defend this person, it will create a new division in the family between those who take the side of the scapegoat and those who are united against the scapegoat. If you were the target of your family in terms of being labeled the problem child or the scapegoat or what's now known in therapeutic communities as the identified patient, you are likely in a massive amount of emotional pain, even if it's repressed. It's likely that you feel vulnerable and weak because the protection of our family or tribe is biologically wired into us as a core fundamental need. So if you've been deprived of that, it is going to contribute to a massive amount of pain, suffering, and dysfunction in your life. But here's the thing that I want you to remember. We are going to talk about the gift of being labeled the scapegoat. Remember that the scapegoat in this story in Leviticus was chosen because it was strong. It could withhold the power of having all of the tribe's sins laid upon it. It would survive for the longest out in the desert. This is why it was chosen. If you were the scapegoated child in your family, it's likely that you are incredibly sensitive, intuitive, and were probably the most switched on and aware person in your family. You wanted to call out the dysfunction and the injustices. And I want you to understand that when this was done to you, the unconscious action that was being taken was that your family was projecting their own shadows onto you. And in the story in Leviticus, the tribe is putting their sins onto the the scapegoat, 
but we can understand now sins as shadows, as the collective darkness, the things that they don't want to look at about themselves. They're putting this on you. And what they're doing also is placing the heavy burden of intergenerational trauma all onto the scapegoated child's shoulders. As I said before, you become the trash can for intergenerational family trauma. It's guaranteed that your parents didn't sit down over a cup of coffee and decide that they were going to make you the family scapegoat so that they could deposit all of the intergenerational trauma onto you. This is a process that is incredibly unconscious and that's what makes it so toxic and insidious and covert. The scapegoat role is passed down through the generations. Just like with my family, my dad was the scapegoat of his family. I, in turn, became the scapegoat of mine. And on and on it goes, unless we choose to break the cycle. When you're the scapegoat or the identified patient of your family, you become this receptacle, as I say, this trash can. And I use that word very intentionally because I find the trash can to be something so you don't even think about it. We just throw things in the trash. And that's why I use that metaphor. And you are the trash can for the family's repressed anxiety, depression, other issues, and other siblings, if you have them, are going to have different roles than you, and they may be the golden child, the idealized one who can't do anything wrong, or the hero, the rescuer, the caretaker of the parent, or even maybe the funny one, the clown, you know, who everyone laughs at and gets away with murder. Oftentimes, the scapegoated child is the child of a very domineering, authoritarian, or narcissistic-leaning parent who then scapegoated them because this child would not obey or get in line or bow down to them. They might call out the injustices, make the parent aware that this is inappropriate behavior in certain childlike ways, of course. And this is absolutely what happened to me, and maybe you can relate to that feeling of growing up in a household like this. I grew up in an environment where I just could not back down. I could not shut my mouth about how much injustice I sensed in my family of the way that my dad had a complete inability to manage his emotions and unleashed his jealousy and anger out on our family. And I paid the price. My dad never physically put his hands on me when I was growing up, but his anger and his rage and his ability to give the silent treatment and change the entire energy in the home and put my mom into a state of terror and make it to where she couldn't even protect me because she was so scared of him, it created the most painful, alienating, and confusing dynamics. And it created a resentment of me against my mother and sister who I felt wouldn't back me up or defend me. And just the toxic element of all of these dynamics is just so insidious, so covert. It happens little by little over time and it really damages us over the long term. It's common for someone who identifies with the scapegoat role to really resonate with being the truth teller of their family or the highly sensitive person or an empath. 
The term empath is another one that has been completely butchered by modern day pop psychology, similar to the discussion around boundaries and energy and spirituality. It just seems like it's been so commodified and so overused and so misunderstood that it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. It's almost like a tick box on little personality tests. But an empath is someone who is a very highly sensitive individual. They feel and absorb the emotions of the people around them and even can develop physical symptoms because of how acutely sensitive they are. There has been research that's even discovered that there is a group of brain cells responsible for the experience of compassion. And these are the types of cells that allow us to mirror emotions and share in the pain of others and even feel their fear or their joy. And this research has shown that empaths might have incredibly responsive mirror neurons and this allows them to relate much more deeply and profoundly with the emotions of other people. And when you are an empath, when you have these hyper-responsive mirror neurons, you have a deeper access to what's called felt sense experiences of places, things, people, and events. And if this is you, you would tend to be highly intuitive, highly aware of the energies in a room, the emotions of other people, and you might really struggle to explain or express this knowledge to other people because it's very hard to explain and society we live in a society that is so head-based because of this whole i think therefore i am situation that if you go to a person a teacher in school for example on my toxic shame series john bradshaw does a beautiful explanation of this felt sense denial in his book healing the shame that binds you he talks about an experience being in school where a teacher asked him um the solution to a problem like a story problem that they were working on in class and he explained his answer to the teacher and the teacher asked him how did you come up with that answer and he said well i just i can't explain it i just feel like that's the answer and the teacher chastised and shamed him and said you need to have sources and facts to back that up right this is a perfect example of how people that are very intuitive and empathic often get shamed and these inherent abilities that are in all of us get beaten down very very early on and this gets even more beaten down when you are an empath or a highly sensitive person in a highly toxic dysfunctional family system where you are forced into the scapegoat role and when you can't explain or feel heard when you're trying to intuit and tell people in your family or people around you that something is wrong and it doesn't feel right to you, especially when you're a child and you don't have the language to describe it. This is what causes children to quote unquote act out. It's because likely they are a highly, highly sensitive child that knows that something wrong. They don't have the ability to express it and they're acting it out and getting out these emotions in the best way that their body knows how. It's actually an adaptive response in childhood that then becomes maladaptive when we become older because things that we can do in childhood, little acting out things as kids and even teenagers can become 
profoundly destabilizing and antisocial behaviors when we reach adulthood. Many people who have studied the impact of scapegoating abuse in dysfunctional family systems think that it's most often the most empathic, highly sensitive, intuitive member of the family who's placed in the scapegoat role. And it's most likely due to the fact that people who are empaths are the ones who want to speak truth to power. And when you're the truth teller in your family, it means that you're more likely to speak out when you see or experience injustice or abuse. When you are sensitive to the pain of others, it might also call you to defend or protect your siblings or even your parent, making you more vulnerable to attacks from the authoritative family member. This absolutely happened in my family. When I witnessed my dad being controlling or jealous with my mom or saying something to my sister, or even if my dad just said something horrible about someone else, I would be the one to call it out. And I paid the price dearly. Like I said, I want to make it very clear, not with physical abuse, but with verbal abuse that was just as damaging to me because now Uh, In my later experience, I unfortunately found myself in a relationship in my later life where there was physical abuse present. And I can firmly say that for me, emotional abuse over time, like I experienced in my childhood home, was more damaging to me than what I experienced when I endured physical abuse because it whittled away at my, my mind, at my ability to know what was right and wrong. It made me start questioning myself. The reason for this is because the empath is viewed as a very clear threat by the authoritarian scapegoating parent. And this means that in their mind, they need to remove the power of the empath, shut them up so that they can maintain control of the family narrative that benefits them, that keeps them from having to look at their own dysfunction. And This narrative allows them to feel like they don't deserve any blame for the problems in the family. So it really benefits them also to remove the power and voice of the empath and create a narrative where they are crazy, disordered, or dysfunctional because it allows them to conveniently look away from their own problems and shadows. It's very common for scapegoated children who are the empaths and highly sensitive types in their families to develop a deep hatred for conflict. And if you've ever heard of the different trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, it's very common for scapegoated children to develop the trauma response of fawning because of this abuse. And this is another maladaptive coping response. And it's also seen as appeasing, people-pleasing, or codependency. And if you have felt like you develop very codependent and fawning type behaviors in your adult relationships, this is likely a result of this scapegoating abuse that you experienced in your dysfunctional family system in childhood. Developing this fawning response and avoiding conflict as much as possible in your adulthood means that you are constantly denying your own truth in an attempt to make the people that you feel dependent on more comfortable. So 
even though you might continue standing up for other people in your life, you might find it really hard to stand up for yourself when you're being mistreated, especially when it comes to your own family, even as an adult. You might be really preoccupied with appeasing people who treat you like shit so that you can just avoid the conflict or even deny the really sad reality of the situation. Maybe you found yourself in another relationship with more of an authoritarian, controlling type partner where you're unconsciously repeating these patterns. And as you can see, it just continues on. And in a situation like this, if you were the scapegoated child, you develop a fawning, codependent, trauma response type personality, you find yourself with a person who mirrors your authoritative parent, they're controlling you, you have a child with them, and then your controlling, abusive partner then scapegoats your child who's trying to call out the behavior and you are fawning and scared to stand up to this authoritarian person, can you see how these things just get repeated and repeated and repeated on down the line. Or you become the authoritarian parent yourself and attract a fawning partner and you become the abuser and scapegoat your own child to deflect from your own shit. We are never going to change our parents. We're never going to change our past, but we can break the cycle. And I want you to ask yourself now, have you slipped into the fawning person that's going to enable this cycle to continue? Are you in a relationship with another person who is a lot like the authoritarian parent that you grew up with? Or have you almost morphed into your authoritarian parent where you're controlling your partner in certain ways? Even if you mean well, it's important to be honest with yourself. I have found myself interestingly in both of these roles. In my relationship where I was physically abused, I turned into that fawning person who enabled the abuse. I thought there was passion in the relationship and I didn't want to stand up to this person because I just started to slowly realize that it wasn't worth the fight. And then I slowly but surely saw my power diminish over time and I became an easy target for him. Conversely, on my next relationship that I found myself in with Zaz, I feel like I morphed into that authoritarian person. Zaz is more of a passive person and I really leaned into my controlling, jealous tendencies and I saw a lot of the shadows of my own father and myself and I knew that if I didn't do something about all of this repressed anger, all of this unconscious shit, that I was going to continue to perpetuate these toxic cycles. And now we're going to be moving into the discussion and exploration of what inevitably follows from this. Whether you're the person who has completely fawned and gone within yourself, or you're the person who's raging as the more authoritarian partner in your relationship, I believe that the core wounds here are the mother-father wound, the toxic shame, the wound of that deep toxic shame, which then is the end result of that, the product is the anger and rage. And there are equal amounts of anger and rage in that authoritarian archetype, the controlling one, and also the fawning response person. Sometimes people that are codependent and lean towards a fawn type response are the ones who have the most anger inside that they aren't even aware of. That's when you have shows. Like there's a whole fucking show on A&E or whatever, like, 
weird network it is about snapped if you've ever watched the show snapped there you go it's and a lot of times those stories revolve around women women who just took it and took it and took it and then one day they snapped and the same thing can happen with men it doesn't matter but it's all repressed anger and i mentioned to you the school shootings the oh my god you even if you just scream at someone at the grocery store oh my god what came over me right that is your shadow it's ready to pop out and it's gonna come out in outbursts dysfunction violence physical symptoms as illness and sickness disease cancer all of these things because it wants to be seen you know we talk about in this podcast about our symptoms as saviors the definition of savior is one that saves from danger or destruction and i say in my longer version of my intro through viewing our symptoms as saviors we can begin to see painful mental health symptoms as natural responses that we can learn to become fully conscious of and slowly change and here's the thing our anger is our friend it wants to tell us something but it's going to get angry and more persistent if we don't address it and it's going to come out in a way that it sees fit whether that's physical symptoms disease or huge outbursts so what's important is that we consciously tap into this anger so that we can become aware of it shine the light on it and transmute it what's going to happen next is we're going to tap into that anger together on my substack this last week and if you're listening to this in the future it won't matter when but i'm recording this in august 2023 i wrote an incredibly deep and personal article for my substack about repressed anger and rage i sat down and really went into myself and after watching a show which had some depictions of some extreme violence and it was a character who was taking revenge on this man who had raped and murdered his family i became so activated by that scene and it set me off down a rabbit hole of my own anger and i finally gotten in touch with it and i wrote a really personal reflection that i want to share with you i'm going to be reading it out loud so that you can hear it in my own words and if you've read it on my substack already i'm hoping that by listening to it and the way that i'm going to produce this for you it can actually even allow you to experience it in a new and more profound way by experiencing it in the way that i'm going to produce it now something else i worked very hard on yesterday i think i spent about 6 hours on youtube because after watching this show and having that experience unlocked in me i realized how incredibly amazing actors are incredible actors can tap into these emotions and when you are highly empathetic if you're anything like me you can watch a show sometimes i avoid watching really intense shows it's kind of why i've been drawn to i think reality and trashy shows in the past romantic comedies because if i watch something that's incredibly moving where the actor is tapping into these profound emotions i find myself completely getting taken back into some of my own trauma but what i realized 
is that there's a power in that. So what I did was I spent five or six hours on YouTube and I found clips and edited them together in the best way I could that to me tap into revenge and burning rage. And as I found myself listening back to this compilation that I'm going to play for you, I found myself completely tapped into that energy. And so what you're going to hear next is the compilation that I've edited. And it's about 10 minutes long. Trust me, it's worth it. I picked every scene so specifically and spent so much time with this. And if you close your eyes and really just listen to this, you might find that you tap into that repressed rage that's been lying dormant within you for so long through the work of these incredibly talented actors. If you choose that you want to skip this part for now and come back to it later or skip it entirely, I include detailed timestamps in the episode description. So all you need to do is check that to see when this section ends, but you can also skip to around minute 53 and that's when the rage and anger edit that I've made will end and we'll pick up on the next part. So without further ado, take a huge deep breath, close your eyes if it's safe to do so, and I hope that you are profoundly moved by my edit of anger and rage. I don't dodge guilt and I don't chew out of paying my comeuppance. Can we just forget the past? That woman deserves her revenge. And we deserve to die. <laughs> then again, so does she. So I guess we'll just see. Won't we? Revenge. Revenge. I want it. Oh, do I want it. I need it. Crave it. I am completely consumed by the need for it. Revenge. <laughs> you know how there are times in your life when things seem to be going great? And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you round the corner and bam, someone steps in and fucks it the fuck up. <laughs> and you never saw it coming because you were too busy being happy. And I know, that's life. Shit happens. You should be a bigger man and just let it go. Well, I'm a woman, so fuck that. <laughs> I want my fucking pound of flesh. I want my revenge. I'm talking Medea-level revenge. Look into my eyes. Give me another chance. Get me the knife. Cut me free. Are you suggesting that this is a knife I hold in my hand? Have you gone mad, my husband? Or is it I who am mad? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. 
kept it for long. I must look for it, mustn't I? If I don't find it, you'll put me in the madhouse. I found it at last, you see, but it doesn't help you, does it? And I'm trying to help you, aren't I? Trying to help you to escape. How can a mad woman help her husband to escape? But you're not mad. Yes, I am mad, as my mother was mad. No, Paula, that wasn't true. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you. And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret. Watching you go with glory in my heart. Slim, we just had a drink. Stop it! Okay, you're caught. I caught you. And you're not going to talk your way out of this. How many men? How many are there? How many have there been? What does it matter? Men and women have different needs. Maybe that's better for everybody. You know what? It's better for you. You have a pretty good deal, don't you? I mean, you go out, you fool around. I sit here, I take care of your house and your kid. Well, no more, Mitch. That's it. The party is over. Calm down, no, Slim. No, I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay? I'm not going to sit here and take it and take it and take it. Sorry. I love you, yes. But I am not a doormat. I'm your wife. I'm your wife. And you cannot do this to me. You cannot do this to me anymore. As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. Just like this fucker here. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! I didn't think so. This motherfucker is psychotic. I bet you they're serial killers less anal. I mean, I got a master's degree in business, and there I was his secretary, his office manager, and his computer! <laughs> 732! 7.32! The number of times we made love! I remember when that bastard told me he was counting right after 51! I'll show you! Oh, you motherfuckers. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm putting cases on all you bitches. Huh? You think you can do this to me? You motherfuckers will be playing basketball in Pelican Bay when I get finished with you. I'm the man up in this piece. You'll never see the light of day. Who the fuck you think you fucking with? I'm the police. I run shit here. You just live here. Yeah, that's right. You better walk away. Go and walk away, because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down. King Kong ain't got shit on me. Ah! What is wrong with you? Go. Go to your room. I'm not fine. I didn't raise you like this. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm not going to a fucking university that's famous for its fucking agricultural school. Give me a number. I don't understand. You give me a number for how much it costs to raise me, and I'm gonna get older and make a lot of money and write you a check for what I owe you so that I never have to speak to you again. Why should I let him see you after what he did to me? Because it wasn't about you. It was about me, and I wanted to see him. My whole life, I've wanted to see him. 
That decision was mine, not yours. Everything's always been about you, never about me. Mom. At least we now know we're on the same page. Yeah, you're a liar. Are you kidding? You had no right to do that. That is my private stuff. God, you're a bitch. Mom, don't touch me. Don't touch my hair. She's out of control. Have you had anything to eat today? Mom, stop with the food thing already. He didn't think it was his responsibility to be here to tell me this himself. Oh, come on. How dare you? How dare I? How dare you? Where are you going? Peter, come back here, please. Help us understand. Or just right, let us help you. I don't want your fucking help. Don't you understand that? No, you don't. Jesus Christ, then what the fuck is wrong with you then, huh? What the hell is wrong with you people? No, then you fucking suffocate me! Oh, you fucking suffocate me! Whoa, it's us? What are you talking about? Shut the fuck up! Hey, you shut up! Shut the fuck up! Shut up! Shut up! I just want to know where you are! Shut the fuck up! Why are you still talking to me? I just want to know who you are! Just let me try it! and he's been drinking. This is bullshit. Don't talk to your mother like She's that. She's not my mom, all right? You're not my fucking mom. My real mom is dead, all right? She doesn't talk to me like a fucking condescending bitch like you, bitch. Shut up right now. I am your mom. No, you're not my fucking mom, all right? Tyler. I am. You pathetic, Catherine. these. Yeah, fuck you. I fucking hate you, man. I fucking hate you. I can't stand you, man. Is that the case? You hate me, huh? Come at me, bro. The thing is, if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? All right, this this whole thing is about self-acceptance. So I should stop judging and accept to start. So no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy. It's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just what, do an inventory and accept. I mean, you back your truck over your own kid and you like accept? What a load of crap. Hey, Jesse, I know you're in pain. No, you, you know what? Why I'm here in the first place is to sell you meth. You're nothing to me but customers. I made you my bitch. You okay with that? Huh? You accept? How could you do that without talking to me? I know you don't understand. You're right, I don't understand. I don't understand half the stuff you've been doing lately. Looking at me like I'm crazy. Well, Bob probably does think you're crazy. We couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was he did that we felt was so wrong. So yeah, Bob thinks you're crazy. We see you, Bob. And if we see you, it means we are right there with you, tiptoeing in line right behind you. And in that place, we're rules, clarity, law, and separation cease to exist. We will show you exactly what we mean by violation. And fuck, I suffered because of you! You know what I... Christ, you know what I fucking... You know what I can do with these fucking ass Christ! Hey, don't be too proud. What'd you say? Nothing wrong with working for a living. Working for a living? What do you call this motherfucker? Is that working for a living? Huh? Is it working for a living when I carried my best friend's legs under this arm and the rest of them under this arm? I saw a fucking baby with his fucking head cut off. I saw a fucking pile of feet in the middle of the street and I had to clean it up. I gave my fucking life for this country. That's not work. And what's it done for me? Huh? What's it fucking done for me?
So I just listened back to that again with you so that I can really be in the same place as you are right now, having listened to it. Every time I listen to that, I feel my own anger and I also feel tears. It makes me cry every time I listen to that because what you're hearing is very real and raw. There's such a talent in acting because it requires these incredibly intuitive, sensitive, creative individuals to tap into real stores of emotion within them. And that's the only reason why it can be so powerful is because what you're hearing is real. It might be in the guise of a movie or TV role, but they're tapping into something genuine and it lives within all of us. Actors are masters of tapping into the collective unconscious. Good actors are at least. And I challenge you to do something if you feel like you're up for this kind of work at your stage of the recovery journey. In this episode, that anger edit is between minutes 42 and 52 of this episode. And like I mentioned to you, I include the timestamps for all the topics that we discuss in each of my uh, episode descriptions of the podcast episodes. So you can refer back to where this is if you forget. And I recommend taking that clip and listening to it maybe in your car when you have a pillow and if you feel like you listen back to that and it unlocks something in you let yourself scream let yourself punch the pillow let yourself express your anger in some way bring some paper into the car with you and rip it up and punch the pillow and scream as long as you're in a place that's private where you won't be overheard because you don't want to have anyone calling the cops on you or something like that or you know thinking that you're losing your absolute mind you're like sorry i'm currently transmuting my trauma i'm alchemizing my anger officer um yeah not the average person is not going to understand that so just make sure that you do it in a time and place where you'll have privacy um it's really important because otherwise it's just almost impossible for you to tap into these feelings so that's just a suggestion that you can do to use that clip because some people are so out of touch with their anger that it requires something like that to bring it out of them. I mean, it happened to me. And this brings me to my article that I wrote on my Substack this week. So I'd like to read to you what I wrote about repressed anger and rage. As I mentioned before, the full article is available on my Substack, which you can easily find by visiting my website and clicking through to my Substack. And I will also try to remember to link the particular article in the episode description as well. In the article itself, I include some YouTube video clips. I include lots of links to additional resources and um, pictures as well. So even if you'd like to, and it's something you enjoy doing, you could look at the pictures while I read the article to you, or you can just choose to experience this as an audio experience, which is the way I intend for it to be. I want you to hear this from the bottom of my heart. And as I mentioned before, for even those of you who have read the Substack article, I hope that this just takes it to a completely different experience hearing it in my own words. Revenge and Repressed Anger How a Period Drama Unlocked My Primal Rage Revenge is never a straight line. 
it's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. Hattori Hanzo, Kill Bill, Volume 1, 2004. This quote from Kill Bill has always stuck with me. Over the last week, I've been binging The Last Kingdom, a period drama that takes place in the early medieval period when the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons were duking it out for control of England. And the other night, as I watched one of the episodes, there was a scene where one of the characters finally gets the revenge he sought for so long. And I don't want to spoil the series for you if you haven't watched it or plan to, so I won't mention the names of the characters or go into too much detail, but let's just say that the scene involved lots of stabbing and gore. The character killed in this brutal way was a real shitbag, so as an audience member, you don't feel bad for him at all. He'd carried out unthinkable and horrific acts of murder and rape against innocent people, and it took almost two full seasons of the show for the character and audience to experience the justice of his demise. As I watched, I felt the beginnings of burning tears behind my eyelids. My stomach churned and my fists clenched. Instead of pushing these feelings away like I usually do, I got curious. I began to reflect on the fact that I've always been particularly drawn to movies about justice and revenge. Kill Bill, Death Proof, Promising Young Woman, Monster, Django Unchained, Hard Candy, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, John Wick, Pearl, Columbiana, you get the idea. I never thought much about what exactly it was that I loved about these films, but as I watched the character in The Last Kingdom finally give this asshole exactly what was coming to him, things started to fall into place in my own psyche. These brutal depictions of revenge tapped into my own deep, simmering, repressed rage. I learned the hard way very early on in my life that it wasn't safe or acceptable to express my anger towards perceived injustices. Boiling, displaced anger runs deep in my family line. My father was raised by a brutally abusive alcoholic and grew up in abject poverty. The things my dad went through as a child are almost too horrific to describe, and it's not my place nor the purpose of this post to get into detail about them here. Having never properly addressed the trauma he endured and choosing instead to bury his rage deep in his subconscious, my father's repressed rage continued to hold our household hostage. And it wasn't all bad. That's the head fucky nature of this childhood trauma stuff, isn't it? When no one was challenging him, and he was emotionally regulated, all was well. I have many deeply fond memories of laughing and connecting with my family, and I love both of my parents. However, if you messed with my dad or somehow called his behavior into question in any way, the tides turned. You became his enemy instantly. 
My mother and sister took the arguably smartest approach. They didn't cross him. I, however, couldn't help myself. I remember so vividly thinking to myself as a child, this is not how a parent should act. This isn't right. And so I fought against it. But I was no match for my dad's anger. I was just a child. And so this led to many screaming matches and many nights crying myself alone in my room, secretly hoping that one day I would get my Hogwarts letter and whisked away into the night on Hagrid's flying motorbike. Even typing this out transports me back into those childhood emotions of deep, righteous anger mixed with a profound sense of helplessness and despair. It was profoundly painful in a way I can't begin to describe. In addition to being angry at my father, I also developed a seething resentment towards my mother. To me, she was the opposite of the protective mama bear archetype. Were mothers not supposed to fiercely protect their children? What was wrong with me to not deserve this motherly protection? Why was my mother more concerned with protecting her dysfunctional relationship over her own kid? Why couldn't either of my parents see how unhealthy all of this was? These questions would continue to simmer unanswered within my subconscious for my entire childhood and adolescence. I confronted my mom about this more times than I can count. Because she was the quote unquote safe parent, I unleashed most of my poisonous reactions out on her. During one of these confrontations, I remember my mom telling me that it was my desire to have the last word with my father that brought on all this suffering upon myself. She told me during this conversation, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know how when you swim in the ocean and the tide sweeps in and drags you under? If you struggle, you're more likely to drown. But if you just let your body go limp and the tide drag you around a bit, eventually things will calm down and it'll spit you back out on shore again. Your dad's anger is like that. You just fight against it too much. You always have to have the last word. I just let it wash over me and wait for it to be over. That's what I've learned over the years being with your father. Hearing this, I felt dead inside. The lesson from my mom was clear. Don't fight it, shove it down. You're bringing this on yourself. I also learned something else. It was not safe to express my anger in a healthy and direct way. Even the people who were meant to love me most couldn't find it within themselves to put their own bullshit aside for long enough to do the right fucking thing. And so from that point on, the world turned into a cold, hard place. I would never have my feelings validated. I was never going to have a mother who would stand up for me. I would never have a father who would confront his own shadows. So I had to harden myself. I had to protect myself. This is when I entered my villain era. I've now come to understand this as the repressed anger to manipulation pipeline. I started shoplifting, sneaking out, smoking, drinking, cheating on tests, cheating on boyfriends, lying. And if I'm being honest, I turned into an all around shitty human being. 
because I couldn't express my rage directly, I learned to express it indirectly by quote-unquote acting out. I fell prey to various older men who groomed me online, leading to repeated instances of sexual abuse and later sexual assault, which only served to prove my hypothesis that the world was a shitty place full of shitty people who would continue to take advantage of and hurt me. One particularly drunk night when I was 16, I found myself half passed out on a bed at a party. I sensed movement near me, so I attempted to pry open my crusted over eyes thick with fake eyelashes and glue. The 18-year-old guy I was currently quote-unquote seeing was hovering over me, but he wasn't alone. I made out the shadowy figure of his brother, a man in his mid-30s. They were whispering in hushed tones, not knowing that I was still partially conscious. I felt his brother run his hands over my body. He was trying to convince the guy I was dating that it would be fun if they both took a turn with me. I couldn't move. My head spun. I was so drunk that I couldn't even feel fear or say no. All I could muster was to open my eyes and stare pleadingly into the face of the guy I was dating. Shortly after that, I passed out and that's all I remember. Everything after that point remained blurry in my mind until years later. My 16-year-old brain just couldn't cope with the reality of what happened to me. Helplessness, anger, injustice, and rage. The incredibly controversial psychologist Jacques Lakin once said that anger is the consequence of a failure of a desire to be realized in reality. French poet Charles Peguy shared something similar when he wrote, it's when the little pegs refuse to go into the little holes. The pegs just didn't fit into the holes. This wasn't how the world was supposed to be. I could never fight back. I was always the weaker one. Why did this keep happening to me? This manifested in the burning rage within me going deep underground, hence why I experienced such cathartic release watching Charlize Theron's depiction of serial killer Eileen Warnos take brutal revenge against the rapist who picked her up on the side of the road as a helpless prostitute in the movie Monster. Thankfully, I'm not a serial killer. I've never physically put my hands on someone in a violent manner. But a fragment of that same rage is there, deep within me. I believe it lives within all survivors of sexual violence. When we repress our anger, we engage in behaviors that are passive, evasive, and obsessive. Repressed anger can develop into emotional manipulation, self-blame, and self-sabotage, themes that ruled my life throughout my late adolescence and the entire decade of my 20s. I became a manipulative monster, steeped in rage and shame, that I could never transmute or fully digest or express. This rage and shame formed a toxic sludge inside my heart that tainted the entire lens through which I saw the world and other people. It became a barrier that repelled all good things. 
I've been seeing a somatic experience therapist for the last two months, which has been a profound experience. I knew it was time to get out of my head and back into my body. I knew that the trauma I had endured was the reason I felt a complete disconnection from my own sexual energy. At this point in my life, I legitimately feel like a fucking Ken doll from the waist down, numb and plastic. I only knew sex when it was taken from me. I still don't know how to freely experience sexual intimacy in a safe relationship. This was a devastating realization to come to and I'm still grappling with it. I feel anger and jealousy when I see women who embody their sexual nature freely. When friends talk to me about their sex lives, I try to play along like I'm normal. Whatever they have feels like something that's out of my grasp. What remains of my own sexual nature feels like it's hanging in tatters, disintegrated, tainted, and rotten. There's no purity and innocence left. And when I think about that, I feel the rage again. The first few sessions of somatic work with my therapist, every time she put her hands on me, I felt a pressure cooker of tears each touch resulted in body-racking sobs. She told me that this was normal for survivors of sexual abuse. And this brings me back to my binging of the Netflix series, The Last Kingdom. The night I watched the bloody revenge scene was the night before my somatic experiencing session. And when I watched this character angrily stabbing the man who had raped his sister and murdered his entire family, Something shifted within me. It was like all the anger and rage in my body was unlocked for a brief fleeting moment. I felt the desire to fly into a rage, smash things, stab something, not someone. I just wanted to get something out of me. I didn't want it inside of me anymore and this terrified me. I didn't want to feel out of control and I didn't know what to do with these feelings. I was scared that if I allowed them to come out, I would be lost in them forever. The next day, I told my somatic experiencing therapist about it, all of it. And when I got onto the table for our work to begin, I noticed that there were no more tears. I told her that I just felt anger. It was in my throat. It felt like a rock suffocating me. I said, I just feel like I wanna scream. So, scream. She said, no one's here, just scream if you wanna scream. A wave of fear washed over me. Scream, now, in front of another person, that's crazy. After a few more moments of encouragement, I took her advice. The scream that came out of me rattled my whole body. When I was done, there were more tears. And I felt something that I can't describe move through me. And as she held me there on the table, I let it wash over me and felt my body regain a sense of equilibrium. I had expressed my anger and guess what? I didn't die. I wasn't lost in it. I could control it and come back to center. Revenge is a long road. It's dark, tricky, and deeply lonely. To be successful in my pursuit of covert revenge against the world that had been so cruel to me as an innocent young girl, I had to become cold, hard, determined, 
and very good at hiding my true motives and feelings. Shoving my anger down into the deep, shadowy well of my subconscious resulted in actions that hurt people who didn't deserve it. It turned me into someone that I hated. But I couldn't and wouldn't face the shame. And so the game had to go on. Someone seeking revenge for childhood injustices as an adult lacks perspective. We'll throw this displaced anger onto anyone who gets in our way because we're likely unable to aim this anger in the direction of the person or people who wronged us. Living like this means playing a long game of duplicity, deception, and having the ability to do things that provoke strong feelings of cognitive dissonance that we choose to remain blind to. The fundamental attribution error is a type of cognitive dissonance. It refers to an individual's tendency to attribute another's perceived negative or harmful actions to that person's character or personality while attributing our own negative or harmful behaviors to external situations or factors outside of our own control. In the simplest terms, it means we cut ourselves a lot of slack while we hold other people 100% accountable for their actions. A good example of this is a boss who immediately assumes his employee is lazy or disrespectful for being late to a meeting, but then proceeds to make excuses for himself for being late that very same day. This boss has made the fundamental attribution error. This pattern is noticeably evident in today's online landscape, where individuals behind screens often engage in hasty virtual campaigns to cancel public figures, similar to witch hunts, without taking a second to consider all the times where they themselves have uttered regrettable statements and would appreciate being acknowledged in their complete human complexity and being forgiven. Anger is elemental. Greek, Norse, and Hindu mythologies and other theologies are rife with archetypal characters of pure, visceral rage, which has echoed down throughout the ages in the work of other prolific actors, artists, writers, and musicians. Annihilating vengeance and searing anger can be seen in the myth of Medea and Hecuba, the delirious jealousy of Othello, the insane fury of Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, and even in the fierce and often violent leaning verses of artists like Eminem. One of the most profound examples of this unvarnished rage expressed through art is in Kendrick Lamar's short film released in 2020 called We Cry Together. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you check it out. My own repressed anger and unconscious desire for revenge against the world and people who hurt and took advantage of me when I was most vulnerable and helpless meant that I was a walking example of the fundamental attribution error. When you hate something, it falls into your blind spot. And when something falls into your blind spot, it's much easier for you to slowly start becoming more like it without even noticing. We see in others what we most subconsciously dislike within ourselves. When we stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back 
Beatrix Kiddo, also known in the Kill Bill franchise as The Bride or Black Mamba, is a great example of this. Her thirst for revenge meant that she became exactly what she despised. In Kill Bill Volume 1, Beatrix seeks revenge against the group of assassins who committed mass murder at her wedding, killing everyone in attendance, including her own unborn child, or so she thought. She was the only survivor of the massacre. A scene that demonstrates this perfectly is very early on, where Beatrix takes revenge on Vernita Green, played by Vivica A. Fox, with the death being witnessed by Vernita Green's daughter. In the clip, you can almost see the cognitive dissonance of her own hypocrisy playing out in Beatrix's face before it's quickly shoved back down. Your mother had it coming. She spits out as she wipes the child's mother's blood off the blade she used to kill her as Vernita Green's daughter stares on in horror, clearly traumatized for life. Beatrix cannot see that she's become that which she hates. Violence only begets more violence. Revenge only begets more revenge. Anger begets more anger. The snake eating its own tail. I've always been the kind of person who had to learn lessons the hard way, and a lesson I've learned from morphing into a warped version of the monsters that harmed me was that we must become that which we despise in order to experience it thereby bringing it into consciousness. Only then can it be transmuted. Only then can it be digested, processed, and expelled. There's a lot of energy in burning rage. The thing is, when we're overcome by too much anger, we tend to set such rigid boundaries and protect ourselves so fiercely that we make healing and connection practically impossible. The time of my life I spent drowning in my own toxic rage, I made a lot of people's lives miserable, but no one's more than my own. As a little spitfire trauma survivor, I learned to use my anger, mainly to keep people the fuck away from me. Watching my dad switch so quickly between rage and regret meant that I was raised in a bubbling cauldron of emotional volatility. The only other example I had was that of my mother who shoved everything down. The unspoken words suffocated me. The sarcasm that told the real truth in passive aggressive ways, the simmering undercurrent always boiling underneath the surface, the unspoken words never to be addressed. Explode or suppress. No happy medium existed in our home, which meant I never learned what that looked like. I was an emotional, feral child. In the tangled and dysfunctional mess of my family dynamics, I've uncovered a shimmering lesson. Within the heartache and pain, a truth has begun to gleam through. Too much anger and you're a danger to everyone, including yourself, with too little anger and you were endangered by everyone. I had to find the middle path. I've come to understand that my anger has a purpose. It is the fierce guardian of my soul's perimeter, a watchful presence, a guardian angel looking over me, those I love and the world I live in. And when the boundaries of my being are crossed, 
whether that's by a thoughtless action from someone or even a more serious intrusion that threatens my safety, my anger serves me by emerging from the shadows, ready to defend me against the breach and fortify my sense of inner resilience. Two essential questions have become the compass of my anger. What do I value? What within me needs to be restored or revived? Asking myself these questions when I feel anger rise within me helps me guide my inner process of protection and restoration. These questions help my anger find a sense of honorable purpose. They empower me to recalibrate my boundaries and hit the reset button on my identity and my integrity. This shift is simple but potent. It helps me transmute my anger into healthy action bypassing the more shadowy instinct towards internal or external violence. It helps me from becoming exactly what has harmed me in the past. It helps me pivot from extreme aggression or passive submission that helps keep me stuck in repressed and toxic rage. I've learned that suppressing my anger impedes the restoration of my boundaries and it leaves me drained of the strength and clarity I need for self-defense and always results in further harm. When I allow my anger full expression in this healthier aspect, it helps me clearly define my limits. It enhances my capacity for more genuine, authentic interactions. And this newly awakened connection to my anger and crystal clear perception of my boundaries also helps me better honor the individual boundaries of others. The surprising effect of this is that I actually find that my relationships are flourishing more now. No longer are my connections to other people full of power struggles, projections, and enmeshment. Repressed anger always leads to hazy and feeble boundaries leading to deep and unhealthy enmeshment in the lives of the people we interact with, especially the ones we love most. Conversely, unbridled, untethered rage that we allow to fiercely be unleashed on anyone and everyone in our lives erects towering, fear-filled barriers that destabilize everyone we come into contact with and make it impossible for us to achieve the love and acceptance we so deeply long for. When we have years of repressed, toxic rage simmering inside of us, it's dying for release and expression. The abrative technique is a psychological approach often utilized in therapeutic settings, particularly within the context of trauma therapy. It involves facilitating the release and processing of intense emotions, often related to traumatic experiences, through verbal expression, emotional catharsis, or other forms of release. The goal of this technique is to help individuals confront and process deep-seated emotions that might be causing distress or psychological discomfort. Abreactive techniques are often employed to help clients work through repressed or unresolved emotions associated with traumatic memories. By encouraging the expression of these emotions in a controlled and supportive environment, the technique aims to provide a cathartic release that can lead to emotional healing and resolution. The term abreaction is used to describe the emotional release and expression that occurs during this process. 
This is similar to what I experienced on the table with my somatic experiencing practitioner when she encouraged me to scream. This is the basis of the abreactive technique. As the repressed memory rises to the surface of consciousness, so does its accompanying effect, enabling the patient to describe the distressing experience and feelings it aroused as fully as possible. This is the psychotherapy of energetic reaction of a release of a quantum of emotion proportionate to the injury originally suffered. This is a very academic way of describing what many of us have heard mentioned in phrases like crying it out or blowing off steam. The German phrase is sich ausdubben, literally means to rage oneself out. Without some kind of physical hydraulic release, the distress and anger felt by victims becomes an ongoing burden on our nervous systems. As Bessel van der Kolk wrote, and I've mentioned time and time again in my podcast, the body keeps the score. This idea of processing and metabolizing pain tucked in the deepest parts of our subconscious minds and bodies was most famously revived in Arthur Zhanov's Primal Therapy, also known as primal scream therapy, which rose to brief popularity in the early 1970s. Zhanov saw psychic pain as being lodged in the suppressed traumas of early childhood and adolescence. He believed that by discharging the trapped reactive anger and uninhibited and spontaneous screaming and ranting, one could find release and resolution. I've found profound relief in my own version of primal therapy. One of the most cathartic and free things I do is take a small pillow out to my car and scream into it. I use the car because it deadens sound quite well and helps me avoid the cops being called due to the blood-curdling screams. Sometimes I punch the pillow as hard as I can, and most time this ends in me dissolving in tears. Each and every time, I emerge feeling exhausted but somehow clearer. As listeners of my podcast know, I've found an exploration of the major arcana of the tarot to be profoundly illuminating and healing in my journey towards integration and wholeness. The Justice card is typically the 8th or 11th card in the major arcana, depending on the deck that you're using. I've found this card carries profound archetypal energy that resonates with my journey of healing from the repressed anger and resentment that arose from childhood trauma, sexual abuse, and the injustices that were committed against me. In the card, the figure of justice sits on a throne, holding a sword in one hand and a set of scales in the other. The scales symbolize the need to restore inner equilibrium this process involves acknowledging and integrating both the wounded aspects of myself and the innate potential within me for healing and growth. Healthy anger is an essential component of the healing process. Embracing my anger without suppressing or projecting it is the step forward I need that will allow me to restore the balance that was so deeply disrupted throughout the various traumatic experiences in my life. The sword held by the figure of justice represents the capacity to cut through illusions. It signifies the psychological strength I will require to confront and process the memories that haunt me. Integrating the trauma I endured will require me to differentiate clearly between the past and the present. To examine the truth of what happened 
doing away with the false narratives of shame and self-hatred and to challenge the distorted beliefs I developed as coping mechanisms along the way. The figure on the justice card reminds me to treat myself fairly. What this card has helped me realize is that justice is not simply about revenge or getting back at those who hurt me. It's also about self-compassion and self-care. It's about restoring a sense of inner harmony and creating a safe space within myself. This means acknowledging the pain and anger I hold deep within, while also nurturing my wounded inner child, who I abandoned and neglected for so long. Carl Jung often spoke of individuation, the process of integrating both the dark and light, leading to the transformation and emergence of a whole and authentic self. Pursuing justice at this point in my journey involves delving into the shadow realm of my own psyche, bearing witness to the pain, rage, and vulnerability that still reside there. By bravely staring into my own inner abyss, I can begin to transform these energies into sources of personal empowerment and growth. Through this work, I'm beginning to transform and transmute suffering into strength, bitterness into wisdom, and anger into healthy assertiveness. I'm ready to let go of my covert and repressed thirst for revenge for what happened to me. I'm ready to accept that those who hurt me are complicated and messy human beings who endured their own victimization, abuse, and pain. The Basa people are a West African ethnic group, primarily native to Liberia, rich in reverence for their ancestors and supernatural gifts. They have a saying often repeated in their culture, if you are never angry, then you are unborn. This saying reminds me of the phoenix rising from burning fire reduced to ashes. I too am ready to be reborn. Thank you so much for listening to that with me. I hope that it resonated with you. I hope that sharing these really personal things from my own journey can unlock something inside of you and help you touch into those places of repressed anger and grief because sometimes it takes hearing something from someone else or someone putting really difficult feelings into words that releases something inside of you that you didn't know was there. I know that the various books and resources that I've come across in my journey have done that for me, which is why I was able to even write that article. So I'm just trying to share the love and pay it forward and be gentle with yourself throughout all this and I recommend as I mentioned before earlier in the episode to go back around you know that 40 I think it was you know I'll have it in the timestamps but go back to around those 40 to 50 minute timestamp in this episode and if you need to listen to that rage edit again and go out into your car and scream along with it do whatever you need to do to release some of this energy also 
I'm really excited to announce that I finally have my very first podcast sponsor that I actually believe in. You'll have heard if you are an OG listener, if you listen to all my episodes and you listen to my James Hollis interview already, I did a long spiel on how BetterHelp reached out to me wanting to sponsor the podcast and I turned them down. And I need the money, but I'm very proud that I turned them down because our interests just don't align. And I already released a longer explanation of why I am working with this particular sponsor. So you can go back in the episodes. If you want to listen to the longer version of why I'm working with this sponsor and the benefits of the products, you can go into my podcast feed and find the episode that's titled, I haven't titled it yet, but it's going to be something like how CBD helped me with PMS and emotion dysregulation. But I'm going to do a short version now because I don't want to take up too much of your listening time with advertisements. And I'm also going to be advertising this for both premium submarines and for public listeners because I really believe in this stuff. And the beautiful part about it is, is that the sponsor came to me because one of our premium submarines, part of the Back From the Borderline family, works with them. So this company is Pure Spectrum CBD. They're a CBD company based in Evergreen, Colorado. And I had the most beautiful conversation with some of the team members there. They're genuinely awesome human beings. And I tested out a few of their products and the results were fantastic. The products I tried out were their Tranquil CBD and CBN tincture, and this is helpful for sleep. I really struggle with sleeping around my period, like big time, falling asleep and staying asleep. And this means that I'm sometimes resorting to using Benadryl or NyQuil just to fall asleep, but that's not great for my body. And it also means that I wake up feeling fucking groggy. And this tincture has been amazing and really, really helping me, especially during the luteal phase of my period when I really struggle with sleep. I also dried out their Recover Ice High Concentration CBD Cream. Both Zaz and I use this. It eliminated my lower back pain that I get around my period. Zaz had a bit of a workout injury with a joint on his elbow, used it, and it eliminated that pain. So... It's worked out really well for Zaz and I. And it was important for me, for listeners to know exactly why I believe in this company and really go into detail about the science behind CBD and how it can help with PMS, sleep, and chronic pain. And I go into detail about the science behind it and more about my experience with all this stuff on that episode on the podcast. So if you wanna go and hear more about it, you can go and listen to that. But Pure Spectrum CBD is now an official partner of Back From the Borderline. I'm so proud for them to be partnering with me. They are known for pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers. They were the nation's very first branded CBD retail store. And in 2018, they made history by becoming the very first cannabis company to establish a groundbreaking partnership with a major sports organization, the CrossFit Games. And in 2020, they became the first cannabis company to partner with an Olympic governing body, the USA Triathlon. And so they are the real deal. They care about quality and I feel safe and comfortable and confident recommending their products to my listeners. I'm using them myself and it aligns with my integrity. 
So if you want to test it out for yourself because results are different, make sure that you do your own research and due diligence. Consult with your healthcare provider if you have pre-existing health conditions or you're taking medications that may interact with CBD. So just be your own best advocate. But if you'd like to try Pure Spectrum CBD, you can go to purespectrumcbd.com slash BFTB and you can use my special code BFTB to get 15% off your purchase. So huge shout out. Thank you, Madison, my premium submarine for introducing me to these products. And thank you to the Pure Spectrum team for being so fabulous. And I'm honored to have you as a very first sponsorship partner of the podcast. All right, so now we're going to get into part two, the premium portion of this episode. All right, everyone. Uh, If only you knew how nervous I was to do like my first advertisement on this podcast. I have to really get over the anxiety. One of the premium submarines, Jenna, when I had about a year and a half ago, I offered a few like personal calls with premium submarines. She told me, Molly, we understand that you need to have sponsors. It's okay. You're not going to put us off. Like I've been so terrified to have any kind of advertisements on the podcast because I'm just, it freaks me out because I don't want people to think that I'm just hawking any old product. So pushing past my discomfort there because in order to scale this work and continue supporting myself, I need to also have sponsors. And so I'm doing it in a way that's aligned with my integrity. And I hope you all know that because I have turned money down. This is just part of the expansion of what I'm doing. It's part of growing and scaling my own business is bringing on collaborators and partners. So thanks for that. So now that's it. That's for the free portion of Back from the Borderline. Next up is the back half of the episode, which is available to paying subscribers. But if you're tuning in from the public BFTB feed, you get to hear a free preview. By becoming a premium submarine, you'll unlock this full episode as well as all other full episodes and the entire back catalog, which includes hundreds of hours of bonus content. To sign up today, check out the link in my show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. So what are we going to be talking about today on the premium portion? I came across the most amazing article all about repressed anger, and that is what we're going to be talking about because obviously in the article that you heard from my substack today and through that rage and anger edit, we talked about more personal reflections, but one of my favorite podcasts is called eggshell transformations and it is hosted by an amazing psychologist named Amy and Amy Lowe is her full name and she published the most incredible article about the connection between the highly sensitive person and anger and I just thought we need to go through this article and I'd love to read it to you and share some reflections and talk about it as we go. So that's going to be the premium portion of today's podcast. So as I mentioned before, you're going to hear if you're on the public feed, a little bit of this. And then if you are a premium submarine, you're going to hear the whole shebang. So let's go ahead and dive into this article by Amy Lowe about the highly sensitive person and anger. 
All right, here we go. This is going to be a long episode today for premium submarines because we're getting into it. There is a strong connection when it comes to the relationship between highly sensitive people and anger. Repressed anger can manifest in various forms, including depression, people-pleasing behaviors, paranoia, and passive-aggressive behaviors. Repressed anger usually stems from childhood trauma or social conditioning. A person with repressed anger might have immature or aggressive parents and be silenced, shamed, or punished for expressing anger at a young age, which reminds me a lot of the discussion we're having around scapegoating, right? With practice, however, one can learn to process and release repressed anger, learn from it, and make the best use of it. The relationship between highly sensitive people and anger is a much misunderstood topic due to traits of their personality, heightened empathy, or childhood conditioning. Many highly sensitive people have repressed anger and don't know how to deal with their emotions healthily. Highly sensitive people and anger have a complex relationship because many see anger as something bad, something they need to suppress, hide away, or quickly undo. Contrary to common impression, however, anger is a natural emotion, not good or bad. It just is, and it serves a function. It can be useful if the highly sensitive person can learn to notice it and receive the message anger is trying to deliver to them. When someone oversteps our boundaries, anger teaches us to say no and protect ourselves. In assertive anger, we're harnessing the very human and natural emotion to reinstate our boundaries and fight for our birthrights. Anger just is, and being able to be angry when someone oversteps is a sign of psychological health. Many highly sensitive people confuse anger with aggression or violence, but the two are different. When anger emerges, there are many different paths we can take in our reactions, and aggression is only one of them. With practice, a highly sensitive person can learn to express their needs and frustration healthily and gracefully without resorting to outbursts and violence. A highly sensitive person may mistake anger as the opposite of love and affection. The assumption is, is that if we love someone, we shouldn't be angry at them. But that's far from the truth. Anger is, in fact, a part of a mature, loving relationship. In a healthy and authentic relationship, there is room for us to express anger, upsets, and complaints. In a childlike form of love, people are either good or evil. Highly sensitive or not, children are only capable of thinking in a black and white way. For example, children have a hard time comprehending how the person who was nurturing to them could also be mean or unavailable. As we mature, however, we would learn to hold both sides of this paradox in mind. In mature love, we know our partner has both positives and negatives. We can adore them and feel disturbed by some of their behaviors at the same time. We can love them and be angry at them at the same time. Truly loving someone doesn't mean that we never feel angry at them, but it means we learn to negotiate boundaries and master the art of forgiveness with grace and compassion. It's therefore an error to assume being angry infers some kind of character flaw. I want to provide a little reflection there because this really hits home for me. 
Zaz and I still fight. <laughs> we actually just got into a really big argument the other day where we were raising our voices and it really almost started to feel like we were on, not even on the same team anymore. We were both trying to win. And sometimes when Zaz gets really angry at me, it's like I feel this immediate disconnection from him and I feel that desire to like split black and white on him, right? Where it's like, oh, this isn't working. But thankfully, now at a place in our relationship, we're able to calm down. We both realize that even though we see some ugly sides of each other, we still love each other. And we're mature enough to be able to hold those two realities at once. And this is really important because I think part of recovery, I don't think I know now at this point, a huge part of recovery is being able to shed the childlike mindsets. I talked about this in my interview with James Hollis, and he mentions that a lot in his book, is we have to grow up. We have to shed some of these childlike ways of interacting with people and one of those childlike beliefs that we have is that like love is just rosy and picture perfect all the time and our partner if they're angry at us it's a quote-unquote red flag and it requires understanding nuance because yeah there is toxic anger there is abuse and we have to be able to discern between just normal human messiness and getting angry and yelling at each other sometimes and then coming back from that and having a calm discussion, apologizing and coming back together stronger, which is what Zaz and I find ourselves doing. And then there's being in relationships, which I'm sure you can relate to that I've been in the past where it's just like nonstop screaming at each other and it's toxic and there is no coming back together apologizing, making amends and analyzing what went wrong. It's just like screaming and then maybe like brushing it under the carpet and then pretending like it never happened. So this requires nuance. It requires maturity and it requires holding both sides of the paradox. You can be angry and love someone at the same time. You can adore someone and feel disturbed by some of their behaviors at the same time. It's just part of life. At this point in the article, Amy Lowe includes a Mark Twain quote, which is really beautiful. And the quote says, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it's stored than to anything on which it's poured. Really powerful quote. Essentially, it's a way of saying, if we're the, the holding container for a bunch of toxic, unhealthy anger, we're the ones suffering, Right. So even if we let our anger out on other people and it damages them, the person who's suffering most is us. So the article goes on to say, there are generally two kinds of relationships between the highly sensitive person and anger, defined by how they process it. One way is to externalize it outwardly through speech and behaviors, and the other way is to internalize anger by containing it within one's psyche and body. When done in a rigid, extreme, and dysfunctional way, both externalizing and internalizing have negative consequences. Typically, it's said that men tend to externalize their anger while women internalize their anger, though in reality, this is not always the case. A bit of a interjection from me here, I don't relate to this because I'm a woman and I externalize the shit out of my anger and I internalize it too. I do both. So I don't know about the the gender stereotypes here. Um, I also know 
a lot of men who internalize their anger, Zaz being one of them, he completely keeps all of his anger inside. So I don't at all believe in any of these gender stereotypes personally, but that's just a side note for me. When most people think of anger, they think of externalized forms of anger, such as someone shouting, punching things, or acting aggressively. In psychiatry, dysfunctional externalizing involves the lack of self-control and dysregulation. Someone who externalizes their anger may act violently or harshly at others with little ability or potential to self-reflect on what they've done. A highly sensitive person who tends to externalize their anger may be irritable all the time, easily annoyed and triggered. When they were young, they may have been argumentative, defiant, or have other conduct problems. They may also act out by taking drugs, engaging in reckless behaviors, or breaking the rules and the law. At their worst, they could even intentionally hurt others to release their resentment. I can absolutely relate to a lot of this, except for the part of like physically hurting other people, but I definitely engaged in the externalizing of my anger and being incredibly irritable. And as you heard in my article on Substack already, this is perfectly reflective of this shoplifting, you know, sneaking out. And I hurt people in ways that wasn't a physical outburst, but it was like cheating on people, being very manipulative and duplicitous. And that resulted in people becoming psychologically hurt, even though it wasn't physical. So the article goes on to say, externalizing anger is not always unhealthy. It can also be done in a kind and diplomatic way. Healthy externalized anger can look like assertiveness or necessary boundary setting. Furthermore, people who do not suppress their anger or know it when they feel it. Once they have externalized their anger, the feeling leaves their system. It doesn't get stuck in the body, remain stuck, or fester. For people who repress their anger, however, the opposite happens. A highly sensitive person who internalizes their emotions suffers internally within themselves. As they divert their anger towards themselves, they often suffer from depression, anxiety, and somatization, which means emotions turning into bodily pain or physical ailments. People with repressed anger might find that they rarely feel angry, but experience chronic lethargy or numbness. The problem is that while the process is largely all right everyone that's it for today's free and public version of back from the borderline if you want to unlock the full version of this episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link in the episode description to become a premium submarine today now this episode continues on for quite a while longer we go into so much with this article we talk about externalized anger internalized anger and why we have repressed anger and then we go into the different forms of repressed anger first when it turns into depression when it turns into subjugation when it shows up as paranoia and then how it shows up into self-righteousness and then moves into passive aggressive anger I had no idea myself about all these different ways. And also we talk about the connection between perfectionism and really rigid expectations and repressed anger, which is something I never really knew much about. And at the end, we talk about 
practical ways on how to release repressed anger. We talk about how we can feel it, how to begin to notice when we're displacing our anger, how to express it healthily, and how to use our anger productively. And then we move into finally some techniques for self-compassion. So if you want to unlock the full version of this conversation, become a premium submarine. And the cool part about being a premium submarine is that once you're a member, you get a brand new private RSS feed where every week you just get full episodes of Back from the Borderline where it doesn't fade out and doesn't cut off. And the benefit is, is that you are supporting my work and you are allowing me to focus on podcasting full-time and investing more in research and production quality. So you get all these benefits, but you're also supporting what I'm doing. But if you're not ready to become a premium submarine today, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or sharing an episode with someone you care about. And to make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app. And also, you can make sure that if you'd like to check out Pure Spectrum CBD, my brand new sponsor, those links and all that information is going to be in the episode description you can visit purespectrumcbd.com slash bftb and use the code bftb for 15 percent off your order never forget you haven't met all of you yet within your weaknesses your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength if only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it we have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.